Father in heaven, we are so thankful to be able to come together and study together. And Lord, always we are thankful for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth that leads us into truth. Lord, not just intellectual truth, but spiritually in our hearts and in our minds, transforming us into the image of Jesus. So Father, I pray now that you would bless us to this end as we study today, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Our series has been entitled, White Out, Whatever Happened to the Gift of Prophecy. We've been talking about the gift of prophecy, specifically uh, zeroing in on the gift of prophecy in the, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the ministry of Ellen White. We've talked about um, Ellen White in terms of inspiration, in terms of her relation to the Bible. Uh, we've talked about some of the critical statements against Ellen White, some from outside, some from inside the church, and tried to come to terms with some of those. And uh, we're going to move today into reading Ellen White. Today and tomorrow, as we're wrapping up this week, we're going to be talking about reading Ellen White. Um, the title of the message today is Ellen White Says, Part 1. Tomorrow, obviously, will be Part 2. Um, I found this statement interesting. I shared with you some books the other day. One of the books that uh, I recommended was this book, Understanding Ellen White, that you'll find available in the ABC. It's also on the Ellen White app for free. There are a number of reference books on there that are very helpful. Dr. Merlin Burt edited that book, and in uh, the introduction on page 5, he says this, Too often Ellen White has been presented as having two passions, rebuking sinners and giving rules. I thought, boy, that's too true. Sometimes uh, Ellen White gets painted. In fact, it, I, there's an interesting statement I don't have here to put in front of you where Ellen White said, I would rather die than have another vision. Uh, sometimes it's perceived that she delights. I, I relate to this a little bit. Sometimes I, it, it, this can happen with pastors. Uh, sometimes people might get the idea that my pastor must delight in getting up and rebuking me from the pulpit. We don't. Uh, I know how to preach sermons that make people happy, and I know how to preach sermons that make people sad, and I like to preach the ones that make them happy. But that's not what God has always called us to do. And the fact is that true spiritual happiness sometimes come from, comes from being sad first. Anyway, you can think about that for a minute. Ellen White did not like that role she had. In, in fact, there's another place, and it's one of the volumes of the testimonies, and I don't recall off the top of my head, where she was getting discouraged about all the testimonies she was writing to individuals, and they didn't seem to be responding. They didn't seem to care. And she felt, what's well, a waste of time. Not only am I making enemies, nobody listens anyway. And so in the vision, she was presented as, as cutting out these white garments. And some of you may remember reading this. And making robes, these white robes. And, and she sees herself in this vision complaining about it. The work was hard, cutting, cutting, garment after garment. And, and she said, the people are just going to get them dirty anyway. And so the idea was, you know, I'm going to do this and they're going to hate me. And they're not going to take the counsel anyway. And she says that the attending angel gave her a new pair of scissors to cut with and says, here, try these and listen. What they do with it is not your business. You cut the garments. And she said, she received that rebuke from the angel, began to cut with those new scissors, and they just glided through the fabric. And, of course, she shifted her focus. Um, Ellen White did not delight in rebuking people. She carried the message that the Lord gave for her and gave it to his people for the purpose of Securing us a place in the eternal kingdom. And brothers and sisters, 
If we make it to that eternal kingdom, we are going to say heaven is cheap enough. I'm going to tell you. So let's talk about reading the writings of Ellen White. When we talk about reading in, in inspired writings, there's a term we use in theological circles called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just dealing with the principles of interpretation. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul addresses the importance of hermeneutics here in this letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look together at verse 15. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. The Bible says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. King James Version says, Study to show yourself approved. I like this, Be diligent to show yourself, and notice it doesn't say approved to man, approved to God. When you study, your study of spiritual things should not be to please yourself, it's to please the Lord. So Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. And of course, as a young minister, he says, a worker who does not need to be what? Ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the concept in rightly, well, let me just put it this way or ask the question, if you can rightly divide something, what else can you do? Wrongly divide it. He's talking about taking the word of truth, the scripture, and interpreting, uh, interpreting it correctly. Is it possible to interpret the scripture incorrectly? I may read it and say, hey, this is what it means to me, and I could be right about that, but I could also be wrong about it. And if I'm wrong about it, especially as a minister, then I ought to be ashamed of myself, right? He says, Timothy, don't ever get to the point where you've got to be ashamed of yourself in your interpretations of scripture. Study rightly, divide rightly. Not to please man, but to please God. This idea of rightly dividing is, as I said, what we would call in theological circles hermeneutics, studying the rules of interpretation so that we don't come up with those wrong conclusions and then have to be embarrassed about it. And not embarrassed before men, but embarrassed before God that we would take his word and do that. Now, I mentioned earlier this week, we were talking about inspiration. I want you to understand that your view of inspiration profoundly affects your method of interpretation. I talked about those who view Scripture as partially inspired, not fully inspired. Seventh-day Adventists take the whole Bible as the inspired Word of God. I mentioned to you that if you view the Bible as partially inspired, that means parts are inspired and parts aren't inspired, well, now you're left to determine what is and what isn't. And so what can tend to happen when you have that view of inspiration is your view of interpretation may go something like this. When you run into something that, caught, that, you're, that is confusing or you don't understand or you just don't plain like, the tendency could be to ask what we called the doubter's question, as you see on the screen here, is it true or is it inspired? Whenever I read something I don't like, I say, oh, that must have been Paul's opinion. There's a tendency to do that. But when you accept something as inspired, you have closed the door to the doubter's question. You can't open that door. Now you're left asking the faith question, 
And the faith question is on the screen. They're working on it. What does it mean? I can't ask whether or not it's, it's inspired. That, I've shut that door, and so what it does is it forces me, and it's, let me just be real practical and plain with you. There are plenty of things in the writings of the Bible and in the writings of Ellen White I still don't grasp. And if I had that door, that doubter's door, I could just say, ah, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. But when I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, when I believe in the inspiration of the writings of Ellen White, it forces me to study. It forces me to search. It forces me to wrestle with these spiritual things. And if time permitted, I'd share statements from many of Ellen White's books where she says that that kind of study of the Word of God strengthens the mind and the intellect like nothing else can. But she says when the mind is left just to deal with commonplace matters, it weakens and even loses the ability to grow. And so God wants us in that place where we have to wrestle with things. We're you're talking about, <laughs> I would be scared if I understood everything in the Bible. In fact, I'd be a skeptic if I understood everything in the Bible because if the infinite mind of God is so finite that I can grasp it like that, doesn't hold a lot of interest. What's fascinating to me is that the mind of God, I can read the Bible, I can learn things. How many of you have read things in the Bible and yet you read the passages again and again and you keep learning something new? That's just telling us we're coming in contact with the mind of God. I get that when I read the writings of Ellen White as well. I just learned something new that I was going to share today and I've got to share it tomorrow because it goes in a different context because I learned this new thing about it. And it's going to be awesome tomorrow. Just a little plug. So, we want to be in that position. I just want, to, I want you to understand that being in that position of asking the faith question strengthens us like nothing else can. It helps us grow spiritually. We don't want to give ourselves some, some back door or, or, or escape route where we don't have to wrestle with spiritual things. The whole concept of hermeneutics, you know, hermeneutics is interesting, the study of inspiration and theological... We do that with inspired writings, but we don't... I'm not going to say hermeneutical principles don't apply to uninspired writings. They do. But the idea that you would even make the point of, of, of studying how to read something, especially in theological lines, reveals that it's probably something inspired, or it reveals that it's inspired. In other words... We wouldn't, we wouldn't spin our wheels and waste our time going through hermeneutical principles with the writings of Ellen White, which we do as a church, if we didn't think they were inspired. Now, we mentioned this week, and I want to clarify this, how, many of, how much of Ellen White's writing, was everything she ever wrote inspired? No, it wasn't. But we made also the clarification, she made the clarification, and we believe as a church, that the counsel, that which she issued as counsel, was inspired. And I need to add something in here, because this is what some of this, somebody asked me this the other day. Well, I understand that, but what about all the compilations after her death? So let me just put in a little plug for compilations. Number one, in Ellen White's will, one of the statements was that she wanted the church to continue to reprint her writings in compilations, to keep the messages before the people. Now, I, I have to say I'm very familiar with compilations in the church. I'm familiar with some compilations done outside the church. I will say, at least on the church's behalf, that I have a lot of confidence in their compilations. But you have to understand, and when I say compilation, I mean you've taken, you've taken a topic, like Adventist home, and you're looking at things that refer to the Christian home, and you take statements and you gather them together. That's super convenient. 
As long as you understand how it was put together, it should not be a problem. Yes, you're going to have statements that are taken out of context. You, you yourself have done it. I myself have done it. If I'm going to look up something on a, on a certain topic and want to distill it, well, I'm going to pull different things together and make a little summary whatever. It's, it serves that purpose. Now, here's the beautiful thing today about the compilations. And I'm going to talk a little about the, 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 the Ellen White computer stuff and the app. And I, I know I may be talking to some who is like, I'm talking to a different generation. I don't like to read those things. I like to read books. Well, I like to read books too. I'm not knocking that. But I'll tell you, there's a benefit with these applications, which are free. You can get them on your computer. You can get them on your, your devices, phones, whatever. And here's the nice thing about a compilation. Say you take a compilation like Mind Character Personality, and you're reading a paragraph, and you're like, I'd like to know what the context is of that statement. In the app, there's a hyperlink where it comes from, and you click that, and boom, you've got the whole article right there in context. So as long as you understand how the compilations are put together, you don't have to read them out of context. Search to your heart's content. All that stuff is available for free. Anyway, enough of that. We're going to go on to talk about these hermeneutic principles. How do we rightly divide the word of truth? I want to share with you four basic rules of interpretation. Now I'm going to drop the word hermeneutic for the most part. Rules of interpretation is the same thing. But nobody, most of the lay people don't, and I don't blame you, use the word hermeneutic. I don't use the word hermeneutic all too often. We're talking about rules of interpretation. I'm going to give you four. If you get into theological circles, you can drag this list out. But I think these four basic rules are pretty across-the-board standard, and you'll see that as we go through here, I believe. When you're trying to determine, let me back up and say this. Here's the reason for rules of interpretation. When you're reading something, the goal is to discover what the author intended to say. Not what I wish the author said. Not what I wanted the author to have said. I have an understanding, and I hope you have the same, that when Paul wrote to Timothy, he meant to say something. <laughs> Does that sound complicated? He had an idea in mind he was trying to express. I want to know why he was writing what he's written. What were you trying to say, Paul? When, when uh, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, I believe he was trying to convey some point. And the rules of uh, interpretation are how we attempt to come to that point. We want to under understand what the writer meant by what the writer said, pretty much. And when we're reading the writings of Ellen White and applying hermeneutic principles, I want to make sure that I'm getting out of it what her intent was, not, not what my intent is. That's why we apply these principles. So, I want to get, what is this getting at, this particular con, uh, thing I'm looking at? I'm going to give you examples as we go through here today. And then we're going to apply some more of these tomorrow. Number one rule, consider the internal context. Now, when we say internal context, when I'm looking at a passage, the internal context is everything internal to that passage. The, 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 it could be right down to the quotation uh, uh, marks and the periods it could be the phraseology, it's the words that are used, all of that stuff. Now in Scripture, we know that the periods and what have you weren't added by the authors, but in Ellen White's writings, most of them were. But more we're talking about words and phrases, because you understand that these things can change over time. Two quick examples. There's a word that Ellen White uses in her writings, the word gay. Does anybody here think that word's changed over time? 
Don, we now are gay apparel. Now think about that. Okay, you've got different words can change meanings. And so understand, if I don't understand the change, I might get a whole different thing from what I'm reading or singing or whatever else. You understand what I'm saying? Words can change uh, meaning over time. Another one that is very prevalent in our history is the word sanitarium. Does anybody know what a sanitarium was? What is, what is it today? When most people hear sanitarium, what is it? it it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mental institute. And so, I, I, maybe, you know, people are like, yeah, the Adventists are always talking about sanitariums. No wonder, you know. I don't know what they think. It was a health institute back in the day. And so those are things, internal context, that's a piece of internal context. Now, phrases also can change. Here's an example of some phraseology that if you didn't understand the change in terminology, you could get tripped up. In Testimonies, Volume 1, this statement was written in 1860. I had 1861 and 1862. I chose 1862. It could be wrong about that. It's one of the two, but it's in Testimonies 1, page 296. She says, Phrenology and mesmerism are very much exalted in her day. They are good in their place, but they are seized upon by say, I mean, I have to laugh when I look at it. I don't know if you guys know what phrenology is. That's reading the bumps on your head to check your intelligence. And mesmerism, that's hypnotism. So, you know, you, you look at a statement like this, they're good in their place. So follow along here. Phrenology and mesmerism are very much exalted. They are good in their place, but they are seized upon by Satan as his most powerful agents to deceive and destroy souls. Satan uses these very things to destroy virtue and lay the foundation of spiritualism. Sounds a little bit overstated almost in, in, in many parts. Okay? Now, very similarly, in the same book, in the same chapter, actually, a few pages earlier, if you'll note this statement, she uses this other phrase, still in the same time period, I'll expound in a minute. The sciences of phrenology, psychology, and mesmerism have been the channel through which Satan has come more directly to this generation and wrought with that power which was to characterize his work near the close of probation. Now here she says, and this is a few pages earlier than the one we just read, that these sciences of phrenology, psychology, and now she puts psychology in that one, and there are people to this day, there are Adventists I know, come away and say, well, Ellen White said psychology is of the devil. Well, is that what she was saying? Was that the intent of the author? Now, there's something that, if you've studied this, you know some things that, or even read more extensively in her writings, you find out that later on, she didn't use that terminology. I suppose her critics would say, well, she gave, changed her counsel. No, she didn't change her counsel. But I want you to notice what happens when we come from 1862 down to 1884 here on this screen. This is from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 352. Now notice, in fact, I want to go back to... Sorry. Okay, go back to this first one. Now look at the, look at the terminology. Phrenology and mesmerism are very much exalted. They are good in their place. You see that? Now look, this is the same statement, almost. The sciences which treat of the human mind are very much exalted. They are good in their place, but they are seized upon by Satan as his powerful agents to deceive and destroy souls. Okay, so what has happened is that evidently, and we know this from more study as well into history, 
that phrenology, psychology, and mesmerism, those terms were a, were a blanket phrase that was used to describe the sciences of the mind. But by the time we get to 1884, that was not the case anymore, and it was liable to be misunderstood like it would be today. And so Ellen White changes her phraseology to fit the times and the readers that are reading so they'll understand, and she says the sciences of the mind. And incidentally, there are positives and negatives with the sciences of the mind. So no, psychology isn't from the devil, but he can use that and many other things in different ways, potentially. Now, Herb Douglas, in his book, Messenger of the Lord, comments, Obviously, in this 1884 statement, we have an editorial correction in the thought that Ellen White wanted to convey regarding the sciences which treat of the human mind. Many books dealing with physical and mental health included chapters devoted to phrenology, psychology, and mesmerism, or advertised other works that focused on these modalities. So she was just speaking in verbiage of the day, not supporting specific uh, bumps on the head and that kind of thing. So change it, word and phrase, words and pardon me, word meanings and phrases can change over time. So that's a part of studying internal context. You want to know those things. Listen, saints, one of the most helpful things at your disposal when you study is called a dictionary. And I'm not being facetious. I've talked to adults, taught Sabbath school, bring something up, they're like this, and I say, do you know what this word means? Uh, anybody know what this word means? Uh, if you don't know what the word means, how do you know what the passage means? You understand what I'm saying? Don't, don't think you're above looking up in a dictionary. I love the dictionary. You learn stuff in the, great stuff in the dictionary. So if you don't study it, know a word when you're studying, look it up. It might bring a whole new meaning to things, okay? So, words and phrases and th th those kinds of things, obviously in internal context. And then when we often talk about internal context, we're talking about the, senses, the sentences that may be just preceding or just following a partic particular quotation. Here's a popular quotation um, on a lot of the critics' websites against Ellen White. If you look at the screen, they'll quote what she says in Christ's Object Lessons 155. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversion, should never be taught to say or feel that they are saved. Well, there it is. Sister White's really clear. We should not have any assurance of salvation to the point where I run into, I can't count the Adventists, where you're like, do you have confidence in Jesus? And when he comes, you'll be ready? Boy, I sure hope so. Have you confessed your sins? Yeah. Are they forgiven? Well, I don't know. I hope so. Because I'm told... Right here. Well, was that the point that Ellen White was trying to convey? Was that what that point was that she was making in that passage? All we have to do is read the next sentence, which they never happen to quote, incidentally, when the critics bring that up. They say, Adventists aren't allowed to feel that they're saved. Well, let's look at what the next sentence says. Just the next sentence, let alone the chapter it comes out of, it would become very clear. But here's the next sentence. I'm going to go back. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversion, should never be taught to say or feel that they are saved. This is misleading. Everyone should be taught to cherish hope and faith, but even when we give ourselves to Christ and know that He accepts us, we are not beyond the reach of temptation. Now, what's she talking about? Just that little bit leads us to see that she's addressing a once saved, always saved mentality that says, oh, I accepted Christ so I can never choose to go any other way. Well, that's not true. And so she's cautioning against that. 
In fact, in the context of the passage, she's talking about Peter, who Jesus tried to tell him he was going to deny him. Peter's like, I'm going to die for you, Lord. That'll never happen to me because he was too confident in himself. And so that's the, just, just the sentence after, the couple sentences after, clear it up. And so it's important to understand the role of internal context. Now let's talk about, oh, I want to share this statement. Now Ellen White knew the, ten, the, the, the tendency that people had even in her day to take things out of context. And she wrote, this is shared in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 44, I know that many men take the testimonies the Lord has given and apply them as they suppose they should be applied. Picking out a sentence here and there, taking it from its proper connection, or we would say context. There's another phraseology that might be different today. Taking it from its proper connection and applying it according to their idea. Thus, poor souls become bewildered when, could they read in order all that has been given, they would see the true application and would not become confused. Much that purports to be a message from Sister White serves the purpose of misrepresenting Sister White. Okay, so it's important to understand the context of things. And she recognized that even in her day. Now this, we talked about internal context. Rule number two has to do with external. So internal context is everything contained in the passage itself. The words, the phrases, the surrounding paragraphs. External context is that which is external to that passage we're reading. It could be in another, for example, in study of Scripture, it could be in another book of the Bible on that same topic, another passage. Uh, external can also have to do with the surroundings, the time that the statement was written in, the circumstances that are involved in that statement that's being made. Those have to be considered in regard to looking at other places in Scripture, or in the case of Ellen White's writings, looking at other places. So, for example, I'm reading this statement about saying or feeling uh, we're saved. Is there anything else she says elsewhere in her writings that I can look at? That would be external context. She makes an interesting statement, again taken from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 42. She says, the testimonies themselves will be the key that will explain the messages given as Scripture is explained by Scripture. If there's something confusing, look elsewhere in Scripture and find something else on the same subject. If there's something confusing in my writings, look where I've written about it somewhere else and fill in some of the gaps. So doing that with the Christ Object Lesson statement about being saved, let's go over to the book Desire of Ages in a passage written two years earlier than that Christ Object Lessons statement, and this is what it says. Desire of Ages, page 88. Those who receive Christ in His true character and receive Him into the heart have, present tense, everlasting life. Is that an assuring statement? It sure should be. Do you think that she wrote that and then two years later in Steps to Christ said, oh, by the way, you shouldn't have any assurance? Obviously not. When you start to read more widely, you say, oh, well, this must not have been the point that was trying to be conveyed. You're going out in an external context, considering other passages. That's one of the things you do when you're looking at external context. What else is said on the subject. When Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, you remember the disciples walking by him and he didn't reveal himself. And they were discouraged. And he said, why are you guys discouraged? What are you, a stranger from around here? Didn't you hear that Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet, mighty in word and deed, our religious leaders took him and crucified him. And it's the third day since these things have happened. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, oh, you fools and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
In other words, you guys are going and you're reading all that stuff about the coming king, but you forgot to read the passages about the suffering Messiah, about the lamb slain, right? The lamb taken to the slaughter. You're reading this, but you're not reading. You should have considered all that the prophets have spoken. Saints, if we want to understand something, we need to study broadly. You see a passage that's confusing? Look at some other ones. And the more you, you, you get the bigger picture, the more clear you're going to be on understanding those things. Ellen White cautioned that time and place of things needed to be considered in the book Selected Messages, volume 1, page 57. She says, regarding the testimonies, her writings, nothing is ignored, nothing is what? Cast aside, but... Time and place must be considered. You've got to consider the time it was written, the place it was written, who it was written to, what was going on there. Notice how she says that. Nothing is ignored, nothing's cast aside. Why is she saying that? Because certainly there are members that are going to say, hey, wait a minute, you're just, you're ignoring what the testimonies say. So she said, no, no, no. <laughs> to look and consider time and place is not ignoring. It's not casting them aside. It's applying proper principles of interpretation. Case in point. I'm not going to look up, well, let's look up the passage just for fun. I'm watching it. The clock always moves faster than I want it to. I'd like you to look to uh, the book of Exodus with me, chapter 35. Exodus 35, verse 3. Exodus 35, verse 3. And the Lord gives His people, the Israelites, in the wilderness, some pretty... Plain instruction here. Exodus 35 verse 3 says, You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. He had enjoined to them not to light a fire on the Sabbath. Now, was that passage intended for all eternity? Is it a sin to make a fire on the Sabbath? I'll tell you what it is a sin to do. It's a sin to do unnecessary labor on the Sabbath. But that principle has to be applied. And it's being applied here. But it's interesting, as Ellen White comments later on, in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 408, she says, During the sojourn in the wilderness, the kindling of fires upon the seventh day had been strictly prohibited. The prohibition was not to extend to the land of Canaan, where the severity of the climate would often render fires a necessity. But in the wilderness, fire was not needed for warmth. They had a pillar of fire. You understand? And so this is a time and place example. There was a statement God made to his people, but it, it had to do with the circumstances they were in. You're, are you following that? But when the circumstances changed, well, then things, that changed how that statement was to be understood. Now, we have, another, we have lots of examples, but I'm going to give you another example in our history. Uh, a new church school had just been built in St. Helena, near the St. Helena Hospital. And the discussion came up on the uh, school board as to whether or not they should have a kindergarten. One of the things they noticed, they had a lot of young kids kind of running here and there without any real direction. And so they discussed or brought up the idea of having a kindergarten. And some of the saints spoke up and said, whoa, 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 you know, we can't have a kindergarten because, if you go to the screen... Ellen White wrote in Testimonies, Volume 3, 137, parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached 8 or 10 years of age. And so, look, it's plain. We can't have a kindergarten. We're, we're not authorized by the Lord to have a kindergarten. 
Ellen White was at the board meeting. And so she tried to help them understand the council a little bit better. And later on, commenting on the situation, this is what she wrote. You find this in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 217. She says, when I heard what the objections were, that the children could not go to school till they were 10 years old, I wanted to tell you that there was not a Sabbath-keeping school when the light was given to me. My mind has been greatly stirred in regard to the idea why Sister White has said so-and-so, and Sister White has said so-and-so, and therefore we're going right up to it. God wants us all to have common sense. And he wants us to reason from common sense. Circumstances alter conditions. Circumstances change the relation of things. Here is a sanitarium, and that sanitarium must carry the highest possible influence inside and out. Now you understand that these hospitals of ours were drawing people, non-Adventist people, from all over the world. And they were representative. And so notice what she goes on to say. We've got to keep this in mind, she says. Then, if they see children who come there sharp-eyed, lynx-eyed, wandering about. Have you ever seen the sharp-eyed, lynx-eyed children? Have you ever been one of them? Wandering about with nothing to do. So she says, here you have the campus, and our Adventist kids are running like wild banshees, some of them all over the place. She goes on to say, we could get that back on the screen. Getting into mischief and all these things, it is painful to the senses of those that want to keep the reputation of the school. Therefore, I, from the light that God has given me, declare that if there is a family that has not the capabilities of educating nor discipline and government over their children requiring obedience, the very best thing is to put them in some place where they will obey. Put them in some place where they will be required to obey because obedience is better than sacrifice, she says. So she says, you've got to understand why the statement was written, what the reason was for it. It wasn't a prohibition of any parent not training their children. But if you were to read just the one statement, you might get the wrong idea. If you were not to understand the broader context, you might come away with the wrong idea. And listen to me, saints, and here's the problem. If I come away with the wrong idea, I might actually be promoting the very thing that the statement was trying to correct. In other words, I might be teaching exactly opposite to what the statement is doing, thinking that I'm carrying out the counsel. You'll see this in a minute. Now, James White spoke of some of this challenge when Ellen White would write counsels, broad counsels to the church, because it always seems that the people who need to take the counsels the most don't, particular counsels. We all need counsel, but it seems that the, one, the counsel we like the best is what we like, what we need the least, and the counsel we need the most is what we tend to right, ignore. And James White made this point In this way, he said, what she says, I'm sorry, what she may say to urge the tardy is taken by the prompt to urge them over the mark. And what she may say to caution the prompt, zealous and cautious ones, is taken by the tardy as an excuse to remain too far behind. So I'll pick out those things in the testimonies, and I'll avoid the things that need to correct me, or I may apply something to myself. Here he's saying, a person who tends to be tardy is going to read And maybe Ellen White is writing a specific letter to a person who is just overly conscientious about being prompt. And so she's trying to balance them out and says, look, brother, you don't have to be half hour early to every meeting. I'm just making this up, right? Well, who reads it? The the tardy guy. She says, you don't need to worry about being on, so, so you don't have to be so consumed about being on time, right? And it was meant for the guy 
who is overscrupulous, but who takes it away? The guy who's always late anyway is like, oh, fantastic, I'm going to wait even longer and show up later. That's the tendency that we have. And that's one of the challenges of Ellen White's writings. I mean, we've got to be honest with ourselves about are we really wanting to let the Lord speak to us and address in our lives what needs to be addressed? I was going to share that. I'll get, I'll get into that maybe later. Now, third principle. So the external, you've got the internal context we've got to consider. We've got the external context. I'll give you more examples of this, but I just want to roll through the principles today. The third rule of interpretation I want to touch on is differentiating between what is called policy and principle. I would call policy is a, policy is like a rule. Policy is that statement of whatever that needs to be done, but the principle is the reason behind that rule. That's the way I like to explain policy and principle. So there are a lot of both policies and principles in Scripture and the writings of Ellen White. Now here's the thing you've got to know about a policy and a principle. Policies change over time because times change. But good principles don't change. And let me give you a practical example. I'm going to show you a statement that Ellen White wrote in the book Education, and I want you to see if you can pick out the principle. It's right here in the statement. What is the reason behind this, this instruction? If girls could learn to harness and drive a horse and to use the, the, the saw and the hammer as well as the rake and the hoe, they would be better fitted to meet the what? Emergencies of life. Now, how many of you ladies know how to harness and drive a horse? I know some do. There's some in every crowd. God bless you. Um, what about the others? You guys don't believe in the spirit of prophecy? Right? This is the mindset that we can have. Because it says right there, girls should be taught. They know how to harness and drive a horse. Well, where's the principle in that statement? If you put it back up on the screen. Why are they learning these things? To meet, better fitted to meet the emergencies of life. Now today, instead of harnessing and driving a, a, a horse, what might it be? Oil change, changing a tire, or something like that. Having a AAA card, right? Or whatever. But you're, now here's the important thing you have. Well, I'm going to say this with the next statement. But policies can change over time. Harnessing and driving a horse is not as necessary. It is in some places of the world today. This still fits. So you've got the time and place element, as well as the policy and principle. These usually go together. But it's important to identify the reason behind whatever is stated because if it's good instruction then it's based on a good principle and even if times have changed god forbid you throw away the proverbial baby with the bathwater by getting rid of a good principle and that's what sometimes we do we say well it doesn't apply today let's get rid of the whole thing that doesn't that's not a good idea i'll give you another example testimonies volume six if you look at this many young people will come to school who desire a training in industrial line the industrial instruction should include the keeping of accounts, carpentry, and everything that is comprehended in farming. Preparation should also be made for teaching blacksmithing, painting, shoemaking, cooking, baking, laundering, mending, typewriting, and printing. Typewriting. Anybody remember those? Every power at our command is to be brought into this training work that students may go out equipped for what? You see the principle there? Do you see that times have changed a little bit? Well, we don't use typewriters anymore, right? Blacksmithing? blacksmithing? Yeah, we're going to have the kids. They're going to come to the academy. We're going to teach them how to blacksmith. 
We don't even blacksmith the same way we used to. We've got machines and we've got this. Uh, so the, the, the training, much of the training here, in fact, now listen to me. Notice that to properly consider the time, place, and circumstances will lead one to feel that it is still and always essential to teach young people blacksmithing and shoemaking. If you fail to apply the right principle, you're going to be like, hey, that needs to always happen. Now, in some places of the world, I'm sure it does. Furthermore, this would actually unfit the youth for the practical duties of life. Right? Because you'd be overlooking, what about computer skills? What about things they need to learn today? So if you don't apply proper hermeneutic principles, you might take the very counsel that's supposed to help us as a church to fit up our young people, and that very counsel may be the means of unfitting them. God forbid. That's one of the challenges in not rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, policy and principle. That's understand, look for the principles within the policies, and then, now the alternative, and I didn't mention that, is to throw the whole statement out and not do anything to prepare our young people for the practical duties of life. Well, that's a great idea, right? See, this is the danger you run into. You either are trying to apply things that don't fit anymore, or you're like, hey, they don't fit anymore, I'm going to get rid of the whole thing. You don't want to do that. You want to find what the principle is, if times have changed, if the statement has changed, and you want to reapply that. And in fact, in many cases, like I said, you apply the principle, and today, maybe that statement fits in some parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, it needs to be modified but the principle will still carry. Does that make sense? Last rule of interpretation I want to touch on is be willing to follow the truth. (laughs) This should be obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Brothers and sisters, we can study all day long. I know people who like to study so they can argue and debate. They want to have the answer. They want to win the argument. Winning the argument is not going to get you or me or anybody else into heaven. The reason for these writings, and I'm going to touch on this a lot more tomorrow, the reason God has given us this counsel, the reason God has given us His Word, is to help us to grow more like Jesus every day. It's to fit our characters for heaven. And if we don't allow these writings to have that impact on our lives, personally, then they're worthless to us. In fact, they may do more harm than good. We've got to be willing to follow the truth. I want to refer you to John 7, 17. It's a passage that you may know well. John 7 and verse 17. Jesus says in John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In essence, if anyone wills to do God's will, he'll know. But if, he, if we don't will, if we don't desire to do God's will, why would he reveal his will to us? Just to heap something else up upon us that we face in judgment. There's got to be a willingness on our part to follow where God leads. And here's the challenge with it. We've got to have that willingness before he shows us. <laughs> you know, it's like Abraham I, I can imagine if I was Abraham at 75 years old and God said, yeah, I want you to lift up root, take everything you have and move to Canaan, I'd say, where's the travel brochure? Right? That'd be helpful. You know, a little bit of something. He had nothing. He had no knowledge. It's just go. 
I wish I could tell you that God's going to explain everything before he tells you to go. But this idea of being willing to follow his truth is a commitment we have to make now. And then after that, he shows us his truth. And there sometimes we're like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But the reality is we're never going to, in the end of all this, we're not going to wish we hadn't done it. We'll be glad we chose to follow the truth. But that means God's going to take you places. You're going to read things, and, and God's going to bring things to your mind, and then you're going to say, wow. And you're going to be tempted to not apply that to yourself. Maybe apply it to somebody else. I always love that as a, as a, as a pastor. Love in a, don't love, love it. But you understand, you'll hear what I mean in a minute. When I preach a sermon... And one of the saints says, oh, pastor, I wish so-and-so was here today to hear that. They, need, they needed that. And I understand what people mean sometimes, but you know what we do. Pastors do it too. It's in our fallen natures. Notice what Ellen White says there here, though. Some interesting statements from her pen, Selective Messages, Volume 3, page 82. She says, it seems impossible for me to be understood by those who have had the light but have what? not walked in it. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, when you don't walk in the light anymore, spiritual things become confusing to you. And and, and that's just exactly what Jesus is saying. He who wills to do his will is going to know of the doctrine, where it comes from, where it originates. Look at this other one. This one is is in some ways even better. This is spoken in, or uh, written in the General Conference Daily Bulletin, April 3, 1901. She says, truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. Truth is only truth when you live it in the daily life. When you're talking about spiritual truth, spiritual truth does not reside here. It resides here. It's not a a theory. It's not an idea. It It is something that grips the life and transforms the life and must transform the life. But we don't like And I'm saying we, maybe you're an exception. I'll speak for me. Well, I don't like to have my will challenged. The Bible says that in every human being, there's what's called the flesh and the spirit, and these two are contrary to one another, and they battle. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So they do not do the things you want to do. That's Paul in Romans 7. I know what I ought to be doing, but oh, there's this struggle between the flesh and between spiritual things. And because of that, and listen, don't miss what I'm about to say, it's because of that that we become self-deceived in our own minds and we don't see our own condition. We don't see where we need to go. We don't see the steps we need to take. And it's for that very reason that God has throughout the generations sent prophets Prophets in the Old Testament were called seers. They saw things like God saw them, not just visions. They saw things from God's perspective, not man's perspective. The prophets opened the eyes of people to their need that they didn't see. I'm fascinated in the scripture with the story of David and Bathsheba. I mean, for so long I read that story and I don't know what I thought. I, too, too much TV growing up. You think everything's solved in an hour and a half or two hours. Like, okay, well, David had this situation, and he slept with Bathsheba, and like it all happened. No, David, David committed adultery. The woman got pregnant. In order to cover it up, he tried to get his husband, who was on the battlefront, who didn't happen to be an Israelite, by the way, to sleep with his wife, so that when the baby was born, he would think it was close enough to the time of conception that it was his. 
But the man was so faithful, he said, how can I go in and take pleasure with my wife when Israel's out on the battlefield? And because he couldn't, then he tried to get him drunk. And when that didn't work, he put him on the front lines and had Uriah killed. And then he took Bathsheba into his house and for an entire year, everything was fine. I, I, you know, I always thought that just happened all real quick. Nathan the prophet came in like a week later. It wasn't a week later. It was a year later. The child had been born. And he told that story and then he said to David, David, thou art the man. And for the first time, David saw what he did not, could not have seen in himself without the words of the prophet. Now, I'm going to tell you, it couldn't have been too comfortable for David anymore, and I've felt it, and I've been the receiving end. I know what it's like to hear the voice of God say, you're not where you need to be, but I praise God for it. I forget where it is that Ellen White says in comment of that, that whole situation, that it was the guilt of David that was the saving of his soul. God used the prophets to help reveal to us what we can't see about ourselves. So it always amazes me when, when we say things like, uh, I just don't see it. Now I know what Ellen White says, but I just don't see it. Of course you don't see it. That's why he said the prophet. Right? If we saw it, we wouldn't need the prophet. And that's happened in every generation. And so then we resort to things like this. I, I found this statement interesting. I want to share it with you. If we go to the screen here, please. Testimonies, volume 3, page 360. She said, God would have his people disciplined and brought into harmony of action, that they may see eye to eye and be of the same mind and of the same judgment. That's a good goal, isn't it? So notice, the carnal heart must be subdued and transformed. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've been there. As much as I battle, as much as my nature battles with what God wants me to do, and I want my own way sometimes, there are plenty of times when I just loathe myself for who I am, and I want to be what He wants me to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want to be more like Jesus. As much as I fight for my own way, I, I'm telling you, I don't want my own way. I want His way. The carnal heart must be subdued and transformed. You can have that back on the screen. God designs that there shall ever be a living testimony in the church. It will be necessary to reprove and exhort and some cases will need to be rebuked sharply as the case demands. Some, rather, will need to be. Now notice this. We hear the plea, oh, I'm so sensitive. I cannot bear the least, she said the least reflection. She's talking about self-reflection. I want you to understand this. She's describing what happens sometimes when the correction comes. That our nature is to say, oh no, it's too much, I'm so discouraged. Don't discourage me. You know, incidentally, in, in I think it's Jeremiah 38, verse 4. All the people of Israel said, hey, let's take this Jeremiah and put him to death. He just discourages people with his testimonies. <laughs> Notice what she goes on to say. This is what we hear. I'm so sensitive. I can't bear the least self-reflection. It's all this rebuke is too much and pointing out my wrongs. If these persons would state the case correctly, they would say, I'm so self-willed, so self-sufficient, so proud-spirited that I will not be dictated to. I will not be reproved. I claim the right of individual judgment. I have a right to believe and talk as I please. That's, that's our nature. And I don't think she's describing somebody who is willful here. Let me rephrase that. 
I don't think this is talking about people who, well, I'm feigning that I'm sensitive. I think this is talking about how we tell ourselves, oh, the rebuke is too much, this is too discouraging. Why would, instead of telling ourselves, you know what? Maybe that rebuke is right, and maybe it's me. And maybe I'm just being prideful. I think we are self-deceived in many situations. Again, maybe I just should speak of me. But too many times, I did not see where I was standing spiritually until the light of God brought it to my mind. And again, I praise God. That's, that's of everything we've talked about. See, this is, what, this is why it's so important to understand this gift. If I take the gift of prophecy and I say, well, this inspiration, this isn't, you know, it's some of what she wrote is inspired and some aren't, and I'm asking the doubters question, is that inspired? And I don't think it applies today, and I cast it aside. It has lost the ability to do the very thing God's trying to do is save me from my carnal self. Can you imagine what would have happened if David would have said to Nathan, well, I don't know, Nathan, I think that's your opinion. I don't think that part applies to me. What would have been the history of Israel? And what would be the history of you and me? Notice this statement I'm going to close with here. From Testimonies, Volume 4, page 496. This is a painful one. I'm sharing it in love. Sharing it with myself. You see what I mean in a minute. In the human heart, there is natural selfishness and corruption which can only be overcome by most thorough discipline and severe restraint. And even then, it will require years of patient effort and earnest resistance. I'll tell you a little bit about how that's worked in my life tomorrow. There needs to be severe restraint over the fallen nature. And even then, it will require what? Years of patient effort and earnest resistance. You battle with temper. You battle with appetite. You battle with it. You know what this is talking about. Even with all, and let's be clear, saints, in this statement, if I were to read it in the broader context, this is not saying your willpower is going to get you somewhere. We're not getting anywhere except by the power and grace of God. The statement's not saying it independent of that. We're going to just <clears throat> muscle down, and, but it's saying we, we've got to put that effort in. That's our choosing, and then God will strengthen us. But even then, it's the good fight of faith. Now, continuing on. God permits us to experience the ills of poverty, and places us in difficult positions that the defects in our characters may be revealed and their asperities be smoothed away. That's why he allows certain things. But after privileges and opportunities have been given of God, after light and truth have been brought home to the understanding, if persons still make excuses for their deformity of character and continue in their selfishness and jealousy, their hearts become as what? What do we know about granite? Hard stuff. Making it, notice, impossible for them to be reformed except by the chisel, the hammer, and the polishing of the Spirit of God. God wants to do anything and everything to take us the gentle pathway. To lead us and shape our characters, but sometimes... Despite all that he tries to do, despite all of his love and all of his efforts, we dig our heels in and we will not be reformed. And then all we've left him with is the chisel and the hammer. And sometimes you'll read certain testimonies. Some of those testimonies are going to be encouraging and they're going to sound, you know, really pleasant. And some are going to feel like a chisel and a hammer. But know this, saints, and never forget it. 
the Lord Jesus is coming soon and he's fitting us for glory. And there's nothing that he's doing here that he's doing against us, but he wants to prepare us for that day that we'll be ready, that we'll be as those stones polished for a place in his temple. God forbid that we should retain our own self-will and our own carnal hearts. Let us be like David who received that counsel from Nathan. Let us be like God's faithful in all generations who would, were open to the leading of the Lord, the molding of the Spirit of the Lord, who took his counsel, applied his counsel, and found their way to that true and perfect peace the Lord wanted to give. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we have considered these things here today, Lord, I want to thank you for sending prophets throughout the ages to be your spokesperson to your people, to help us to see our need, to help us to see the way forward, to help us to take our stand for truth, and to one day be ready to rejoice when Jesus comes again and to then enjoy eternity in your presence. Oh, Father, that's my desire for everyone here today, that one day very soon, the heartaches and the pains of this life will be past, our characters will reflect yours, and that we will be together in the paradise of eternity, saying, heaven, heaven was cheap enough for us. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for your many blessings. Bless us through the remainder of this day and this camp meeting. May your spirit continue to speak and may we continue to respond in a yielding and open way. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.